Pena, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Data, we are here just hours removed from the Raw after WrestleMania 36 going off the air, and honestly, not that long after WrestleMania 36 itself ended on Sunday night. If you have not already, be sure to listen to our instant analysis of WWE WrestleMania 36, where Jack Crosby and I break down every result and storyline that went down over the 18-match, two-day show this past weekend. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, drop us that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and please tell your friends about your favorite new wrestling podcast. The faster we grow, the better it will be for everyone. I know you guys want that soundboard and some of the improved audio equipment. Hopefully it will come sooner than later, but the fastest way to make that happen is to allow us to grow and get more popular. With me today is Chris Benini to break down a mediocre Raw after WrestleMania, which I think we basically all expected. Uh, But we're going to start today's show hitting a couple topics from WrestleMania for a second time, maybe with a fresher look at WWE's biggest show of the year now that we're basically 36 hours removed from WrestleMania 36. We can call it the WrestleMania remix if we want. Um, You know, Chris, there were moments from 36 that I did end up re-watching before Raw on Monday night. And the primary one that I re-watched was the WWE Championship match between Brock Lesnar and Drew McIntyre. Because in the moment, I was a little annoyed by it. I thought it was not necessarily the same as Goldberg Braun Strowman. Uh, a lot of people just jumped to that conclusion because it was fast and there were a lot of finishers, but I didn't love it necessarily. However, when I rewatched that match a second time, I still didn't love it necessarily, but I really liked it. And I think had it been in front of a crowd and booked in the exact same way that McIntyre would have got over as all hell because the story they were telling was, you know, he wouldn't necessarily be prepared for the F5 when it hit. Brock you know, has had proven he was unable to take a Claymore. And yet you have Brock, who was able to kick out of a Claymore early in the match. You have Drew, who could not be put down by the F5. You had Paul Heyman freaking out in the background and basically trying to coach Lesnar up to keep hitting him again uh, with the F5. And McIntyre took advantage, hit a couple Claymores, and won the match. But it wasn't just finishers. There were suplexes. Um, and there, and there was, were there other elements to the match that made it far better than Goldberg Braun Strowman, at least for me. So I came out of my rewatch of the main event saying, you know what? It wasn't half bad. It was a good way to put Drew McIntyre over. And I honestly don't know what else they would have done because I don't, I didn't want like a remix of the WrestleMania 34 main event where Lesnar and Reigns just went all over the ring and it took 20 minutes and it was supposed to be this epic, but fans, you know, uh, rallied against it. If you did a 20 minute match, Coming out of the Firefly Funhouse, I think it probably would have been a failure and people would have looked at it as long, slow, and boring, maybe akin to Edge and Randy Orton. So I guess my point is I kind of had it as a C, Lesnar McIntyre, but going back on it, I really, I gave it a B. I think it's uh, a solid main event and McIntyre got over as all hell. So, you know, what did you think about that main event? And we'll also kind of talk about some of your opinions from the rest of WrestleMania 36. Well, first off, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. I, I'll say that McIntyre's promo on Monday, which we'll get into later, I think helped it in hindsight, the match. I have not gone back and watched it a second time. I just didn't have much interest in it. 
Uh, I can understand what you're saying. It wasn't as bad as Braun Goldberg, but it wasn't too dissimilar. And and all I kept thinking about was, I mean, Brock Lesnar is a great pro wrestler. He is, he can put on great matches. He can do all the little things. He can, he can put on a great match. By all accounts, it seemed like he was really into Drew and liked working with him and stuff. And it, to me, it just felt like a disservice to Drew that we didn't even get a real match. It didn't need to be 20 minutes. It could have been 10 minutes. I think you could have gotten away with it. But all I remember on first watch and all I think a lot of other people are going to remember is just spamming finishers. And even if, you know, we hadn't had Braun Goldberg do that same thing the night before, I still wouldn't have been a fan of it because they, they, they've been doing this too much in general and it doesn't help anybody. It, kicking out of three F5s or whatever in the first two minutes of a match does not make anybody look better. It just makes the F5 look weaker. It does. You, 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 you need to build to these finishing moves. That's why they're called finishing moves, not starting moves. And I just felt bad for Drew because I felt like he deserved a real big moment for that win. And, and it was fine. And he's, you know, I'm happy for him and everything. He, I think he absolutely deserved this. I just would have loved a real 10 minute match where it felt like they were really fighting each other. Uh, really two heavyweights going at it. You can physically feel it doesn't need to be long. You can make it physical though, as we saw all weekend. Uh, but I, I will say Monday again, helped it a little bit in hindsight, but may, maybe I should go back and watch it the second time. Cause you seem to like it more. The second well, time. So maybe well, I should do that. The thing is this, it's, it's not, no one is saying it couldn't be better. It, it could have been so much better, even given the circumstances, but it also wasn't bad. And I think a lot of people were thinking Goldberg Stroman and they're like, Oh, they just did the exact same thing. The truth is it was more than twice as long as Goldberg Stroman. It was closer to Goldberg Lesnar than it was Goldberg Stroman. Um, and, but in this case, you had McIntyre get put over extremely strong. Not only that, but after the match, after the one, two, three, Lesnar sold the shit out of the Claymores. He was dead, sprawled out in the middle of the ring the entire time Drew celebrated until they went off the air. So you had Lesnar selling it, you had Heyman selling it, and you had a nice, good, uh, dominate, dominant moment for McIntyre himself. So I guess my point is just not that it was great, but it could have been a lot worse. It could have been Goldberg Strowman, but they actually did put a little bit of storyline thought behind it. But look, there's no question that when you are a wrestling fan and you're used to some of the great WrestleMania main events and major matches that you've seen over the years, for the main event of WrestleMania to be like four and a half minutes, it's just not what you want. Like like in on that show Sunday, I believe the SmackDown women's title match went 20, the NXT women's title match went 20, and Orton Edge went 36 minutes. They should have figured out a way to have Edge Orton go 26 minutes, which is still probably too long, and then make the main event 14. Like you can yeah. figure you can figure out enough stuff to do with Drew and Brock, even if there's a table spot involved or something crazy happens or Lesnar attacks Drew before the bell and weakens him. Um, there are there's plenty that you can do to allow a main event to be a main event. I think the disappointment that people had is that it was the main event and it was four minutes, as opposed to the story they actually told, which I think if you stretched it out a little bit, would have been better received. That, yeah, and one I mean. thing about Goldberg Lesnar, which I actually really liked, 
is that kind of went against our expectations. We expected a two-minute match back then and ended up going five. This one we expected 15-20 and it goes five. So it's a different taste coming out of it because we know we know they're capable of more. And I think that just ends up being the, the ultimate feeling coming out of it is, is a little bit of disappointment. And that honestly, it's really the only only sour taste I think I have on the show relative to expectations going in. And it's not even that bad, but uh, it, it stood out in that sense. It was one of the few things that I think didn't quite meet expectations. And that's totally fair. Uh, now, I did break down you know, this entire card with Jack already. And I, to be ca- candid with you, man, I'm running on fumes. I don't, ne- <laughs> I don't necessarily want to do the entire card again. No, but, no, 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 no. But I definitely want to talk about things that may have exceeded your expectations or, or really your top takeaways from WrestleMania. So the first thing I'll ask you about clearly is the Firefly Funhouse match and the Boneyard match. What, I don't even know where this term came from, but people are using it. The WWE cinematic experiences. Uh, did they hit home from you? Did you love both of them? Did you like one more than the other? What were your thoughts? Maybe you start with Boneyard, but coming out of the Boneyard match and coming out of the Firefly Funhouse match. Absolutely loved both of them. Loved the Firefly Funhouse more because it was obviously a lot different, but but even the Boneyard match worked great. And th- these are two things that would not have happened if we had a normal show. And we like to say when, when their backs are against the wall, WWE comes through a lot of times. And I think that's the case really for the whole weekend here. And and as it relates to what I refer to the WrestleMania cinematic universe, uh, I, I, I just, it, it, it was fun. It didn't feel like we were thinking meta about what certain things mean. You trust it. It was one of the few, especially going to the Funhouse match after the Boneyard match, it felt like we trusted them to get this right. And We've talked on here before about how we do not trust them to do right by Bray Wyatt. We do not trust them to do, we not trust them to have John Cena lose. And coming out of that, it it really felt like they understood what people wanted and they gave it to them. And it feels like we don't always get that. And especially with the Funhouse, it sounds like Bray was in control of a lot of that. Uh, And it came across to me as a, as almost a love letter to pro wrestling. Like there was so much in there that you only got if you watch a lot of pro wrestling. And that's a payoff that WWE, the main roster almost never gives you. You get that a lot in NXT, but you rarely get that from uh, the main roster, especially a WrestleMania situation like this. So great job all around. I, honestly, I, it kind of made me wish they had done some of these type of cinematic viewings with regular matches in the ring not not that kind of a match viewed as a highlight package, so to speak, with different angles and, and oh, you know, stuff like yeah. that. It, no it, it, but, but I think it all worked fine, but it made me think, oh, man, there's so many different things you could do here uh, coming out of it. And my, my main takeaway from the Boneyard match is I and a lot of other people want Undertaker versus Sting in a Boneyard match. Uh, I think that's the way we can make it happen in a way that's going to live up to what it should. Yeah, no, I think the point is well received about why didn't WWE take some of the elements or concepts from these and extend them to the entire show? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think their goal was to keep things as normal as possible for most matches, right? So they don't want to change their in-ring product that drastically that by the time we get back to live stadium shows, arena shows in September, if we're lucky, right? Uh, by the time we get back to that, they don't want to then change it 
and have everyone say, what the hell is this? Right. right. Like, you know, and, and be used to something else. So that's my guess why they didn't do that. But one thing I, we did not talk about on the incident analysis, because there was so much to talk about. I did think that they missed the concept of having ambient noise in the background during the matches, not fake crowd. Yes. Not, not musical tracks, not a soundtrack. Um, but there is a way to provide audio that drowns out the emptiness mm-hmm. while simultaneously allowing the in-ring sound and the commentators to come through way louder than it. Just something that breaks up the silence between moves, between statements by the commentary team. And I was very disappointed that they put so much effort into the on-screen viewing experience for those two matches, even the last man standing match to some degree, but didn't necessarily go beyond here's two people wrestling in a ring for everything else. I thought the set looked great. Something else I also didn't mention, them bringing the WrestleMania side, forget the Kevin Owens, Seth Rollins spot, the fact that it was there the entire time and such a big part of the background, it did massively improve the look and feel of the entire show. Um, So I thought WWE did a great job with the look and feel, but you do kind of think, especially looking back now, had they done one or two things, it would have been even better received than it already was. So that's kind of what I take away from all of that. You were right, though, about the Firefly Funhouse. It's a great comment. It was a love letter to smart fans. They said, you know, a Cena-Bray Wyatt Fiend match, especially considering how popular The Fiend is and how long-term popular John Cena is, that's a casual match. It really is. That's something that you market to the casual fan who's tuning in for John Cena, knows The Fiend because he's popular now, and you don't necessarily expect WWE to go back and tell you this story. They did it in the lead-up, which was great, but the match itself makes the lead-up the segments on SmackDown that we had seen in the two or three prior weeks, even better because they're setting yep. the stage for the story they told in the Firefly Funhouse. And I mean, we could get into psychologically, um, you know, what the purpose of every single segment was. I think that's better left for someone else to do, you know, especially now sure. that we're so far removed. But it was genius. And I, I did watch that a second time as well. The, the, Things I watched a second time were those two matches. Oh yeah, from Sunday Night Show, and I just was sitting there because the first time, you know, we were I was doing some analysis. We were talking about it on Twitter. You're distracted. The, I got I sat and watched it, no interruptions for however long it was, 15, 16 minutes, and I was just in awe at how many references, how many smart connections they made, the way they broke down John Cena's career um, in the in the prism of Bray Wyatt and how he saw this John Cena character that everyone else sees as as a superhero, as a hero, uh, to Bray Wyatt, he's a villain, he's a bully. And to be able to see it from that perspective, it gave me new appreciation for Bray, for WWE's production. The fact that Cena allowed them to tear apart his entire career, um, everything that he has legitimately accomplished, they basically tore apart in one way or another. He gets every chance in the world. He never turns heel. He failed as a bodybuilder. He failed, you know, as a rapper, you know, ruthless aggression failed, so on and so on. Again, I could go through the whole thing. It was just genius. So where I think Boneyard was a cinematic success, Firefly Funhouse was a professional wrestling success. That's how I differentiate the two. It it was a story. I mean, I wouldn't even say, yes, it was geared toward smart fans, but I wouldn't even phrase it like that. I I would phrase it toward 
it's geared toward people who pay attention and have paid attention for a very, very long time. And it's a, it's a payoff for people who stuck with them and, and oh, yeah. have always been around there. And, and we just rarely get that, especially on the main roster. And I've watched it. I've watched it three times, at least maybe four times, I think since then uh, just, it's so enthralling in every step of the way. And I'm, we'll see who knows where SmackDown's going to go from here, but uh, well, the other absolutely thing too, loved it. The other thing too is, and yes, we do have a podcast where we talk about wrestling in depth, but wrestling is for the most part. And I don't say this in an insulting manner. It's dumb television. Sports, too, are dumb television. There are things that – reality TV. There are things that you can put on where you don't have to think that in-depth about it like you would The Wire or Game of Thrones or something like that, right? But this, the Firefly Funhouse, what made you think – and it is so rare that wrestling makes you sit back and say, what did I just see? Mm-hmm. I need to see it again, and I need to t- try to digest it further than I did – on my first watch. That doesn't often happen. I mean, it, Okada Omega 3 made me do that. Um, you know, this certainly made me do that. But rare is it that something that happens in professional wrestling takes you to that next level. And I think that's why it was such a massive success. Now, uh, for the rest of WrestleMania 36, Chris, you know, what else do you kind of want to share? You can kind of go on a little rant if you want, but anything from Owens and Rollins to Edge and Orton, the women's matches, the undercard was basically worthless for the most part, I think. Uh, but what else was on the top of your mind uh, coming out of Mania that you kind of wish you were available to share on the uh, instant analysis? Well, you mentioned the ambient noise thing. And that also stuck out about the Boneyard match in that we could hear them talking. There was all the natural sound of the punching and everything. But there was a little bit of noise in the background. Oh, yeah. And it just, and it just calms you a little because it doesn't make silence stick out. And I'm, I'm not I'm going to be honest. I watched the women's tag match on mute and I was oh. playing the Kabuki Warriors theme because <laughs> that thing, that thing rocks. It bangs. And, yeah, it and so I watched it with that. And then I watched Shayna, much of Shayna Becky with Shayna's theme on. Cause I like that. And I noticed that like when Shayna was controlling the match and I was hearing her theme song, it really added to it in my mind as I was watching this. So I don't know if they could have done something where whoever's on top, their music is quietly playing in the background. I don't know, but just some sort of noise. You know how NBA games will play with music on in the background? Exact, exactly I, right. Exactly. There, there, there are ways you can do it where it doesn't sound so obvious. And when they do a replay, you hear Michael Cole calling a thing we just heard five seconds ago. So the silence did stick out, especially in the matches where you weren't invested. And I, it, I'm, you're right that some sort of noise, music, whatever in the background, I think would have worked. The other thing that only from a big picture standpoint that stood out two not only was it two nights, but they generally did everything in order from least important to most important. And uh, on Saturday, they did. They Saturday, did on they Sunday. did. Sunday, not as much, but even still, I mean, I, obviously, they started with Rhea Charlotte. But other than that, it generally was building throughout the night, I think, you, to go from the women's SmackDown match to the Firefly Funhouse to the championship match. Normally, if this was one seven hour WrestleMania, we're mixed, we're, we're going big, small, big, small, take a break, catch your breath. And I thought that not only did two days, I think, work 
because digesting a three-hour show is a lot easier than digesting a seven-hour show. But the show is both generally built up throughout that shorter period, and then you come out of it with a pretty good taste in your mouth because you got all the good stuff at the end. And the way you feel at the end is is huge in terms of how you end up feeling about the whole thing because you wanted you want things to end on a good note. WrestleMania 34 was a great show, ended on a bad note, and it kind of takes away from everything else. So I like two nights, not only because it's easier and, and, and less draining, but I like how they, for the most part, went from they built it up throughout the night instead of up, down, up, down, up, down, and it was less of an emotional swing. You got higher, you stayed at that high, and it kept going up. I would love to see them continue to do that in the future. I have no idea if it's feasible. They're advertising WrestleMania Hollywood is one night, so who knows? But as a changeup, I thought that was a great adjustment. Yeah, I think, uh, and we did discuss this on the instant analysis, but going two nights is just difficult because of ticket. You're asking people ticket sales, hotel yeah. rooms, travel. Next year in particular, coming out of what should be either a recession or a depression in this country financially, people aren't going to have the money to do that, uh, especially in California, where certainly it hit hardest early. Uh, so I do think the two night thing, I'm not saying it could never happen, but I think it is a difficult ask. Uh, that said, you know, I did, while you were talking, I did look back at the Sunday card to see if it did build the way you were talking. And it kind of did. I think what happened was they probably meant it to, but Edge Orton being 36 minutes, they didn't want to go Edge Orton for 36, the SmackDown Women's Championship for 20 back to back. So they put the Raw Tag Team Championship in between. That is why maybe I didn't feel that way. In in retrospect, it was a good decision not having Edge Orton near the end of the pay-per-view because it really didn't live up to expectation. It was too long. You know, I mean, we can go through that again. Um, but I did think it was a mistake to put the NXT Championship at the front of the show, whether they did it because it was the NXT title or they just wanted to start the sh Sunday show with a bang, I don't necessarily know. But that match was too good to be that early in the show. And because it was pre-taped and they had the ability to completely shuffle things around, I honestly would have put it – I would have gone SmackDown Women's Championship, NXT Women's Championship, Firefly Funhouse, and then Drew McIntyre, Brock Lesnar to end the show. That, I, I think so, I but I, I think in kayfabe, starting with the NXT title works, and I was okay with that, but I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. All right, moving on to the Raw after WrestleMania, which is really the main point of today's show. Uh, a couple of you commented to me on Twitter, uh, worst Raw after WrestleMania ever, three boring hours. I don't know why you're surprised. Um, we are in a global pandemic. WWE put all of its effort into delivering eight hours of WrestleMania that were better than they had any right being whatsoever. And I did not expect that they were then going to give me three hours of a great Raw after WrestleMania. If there's a upset, if some are upset because there's a lack of big surprises, well, you know what, man? The Raw after Mania hasn't been good for a few years. It really has not. Bobby Lashley returning a couple years ago was not that big of a surprise. Uh, I'm not really sure what people wanted them to do on Monday night. For all considerations, I thought it was mediocre to fine. I had no criticisms. I'm mean, sorry, not, not that I have no criticisms. I had no major criticisms. I don't come out of the show angry with WWE. They taped it a week ago. They may not have even known if they were going to have the ability to do more Raws. So I don't blame them for not starting new storylines. For me, it was just... It, it was fine. I, I, I don't 
see a need to complain about this. And I like to complain when we get a really bad Raw or a really bad SmackDown. But Chris, I just I can't muster the energy or the anger considering the circumstances. I just can't. No, I I was not expecting a ton. I thought the Drew stuff that they ended up doing at the end, which we'll get into, was actually pretty good and was was obviously the biggest story coming out of it. But the rest of it, doing some tag matches, doing some other matches, I wasn't... Again, it came down to expectations. And, and after how Raw had been the last handful of weeks, I didn't expect it to be any different than what we'd gotten. And and Raw after Mania is, is only known for fans and surprise it's the crowd it's, it's, it's the crowd yeah it's, it's the, the crowd, crowd and it's it's, it, it's yeah. surprise debuts or returns or whatever and you knew they weren't going to do anything major uh with no with in the current situation you're in other than nia Jax comes back and it, i didn't again i just i didn't expect much out of it because it was it, it i because of what we got in the past handful of weeks on raw i wasn't expecting anything all that different and so i thought it was Fine. It was what I expected it to be, honestly. That's exactly right. The crowd makes the show. And it it always has the Raw after WrestleMania. And yes, WWE does sometimes give us a big return or debut or a brand change or something like that, or just a surprise new challenger for a title um, or just shocking moments. But we're not in that situation right now. Also, WWE, for lack of a better term, kind of blew their load on surprises when they had John Morrison return for no reason in February uh, when they and, and announced his signing. That could have been one. Um, Bianca Belair, which we'll talk about in a moment, they had her debut, quote unquote, on WrestleMania when they didn't need to do that. So, yeah. I mean, yes, did they make mistakes? Yeah. And are, is there going to be some criticism in the following few minutes? Absolutely. But I don't think that they took a potential a show and made it an F. I think they took maybe a potential B show and made it a C. And, and I'm not going to come. I'm not going to sit here after being entertained by that much WrestleMania and trash raw to the extent that I guess some people want nope. me to maybe, maybe I will next week, but not this week. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So WWE spent all night promoting a big moment that ha- happened in the aftermath of WrestleMania to Drew McIntyre. They spent three hours promoting it and it was the big show. So we all know why it was the big show, because he has a new sitcom debuting on Netflix. But come the F on. Um, The match itself ended up being fine. You know, I thought show actually moved pretty well, and it was a good look for Drew, no question. But the mental gymnastics that WWE wanted fans to go through to believe something happened after WrestleMania, but they didn't tell us Sunday night, and no one said anything until the end of a three-hour Raw, and it involved the new WWE champion. I mean, it, that is just, it, that was a little bit insulting to me. Not to mention the idea of the Big Show getting a title match for no good reason whatsoever. I get it. Drew said that on TV. Show slapped him. Then he did. I, I, I saw the same segment that you all did, okay? But for me... It just rang so hollow. If if they wanted Drew to open the show and have Big Show come out at the start of Raw and do that and have it not be, quote unquote, WrestleMania aftermath, fine. But the idea of the new WWE champion being confronted by a guy dragging a referee to the ring 20 minutes after his match ended and a veteran at that in Big Show who you would think would never ruin someone else's WrestleMania moment, he'd be smart enough and knowledgeable enough of the business and and politics not to do that. So it doesn't work as a smart fan. It doesn't work as a regular fan. 
I I thought the match was good, shockingly. But the again, the mental gymnastics they wanted me to do to accept that, it just didn't work for me. You know, I didn't hate it. I, I thought it was kind of like what you said, a, a B to a C. To, to your point of why are they holding this and not saying what happened yesterday and, and whatever, why did this only come up now? It, to me, the fact that we knew it was all taped kind of felt a little bit like old school wrestling to me. Like, oh, something happened after the show and we're going to we're going to tease it and we're going to hold it. And we didn't reveal it on Twitter after the night. We didn't do something like that, like they almost normally would now. Oh, something happened afterward. Put it up on YouTube, whatever. It felt like old school taped wrestling to me where they something had happened and they kind of waited to show you what happened the previous night until the end teased it throughout the night i actually kind of liked it i i was surprised on paper i wouldn't normally like that but i think given the circumstances given we know it's all taped and everything i don't know it just felt a little old school to me i liked it as for it coming out and being the big show and eh, it's fine i i, I thought at first, I thought it was weird that Drew was coming out right after he did his match. Of course, and, it was weird. Of course, it was weird. But then he explained <laughs> that he went. He wanted. He kind of explained it away as he wanted to get his plates on his belt before he came out and did his interview, which is fine. It's it's a good enough explanation for me. You could have just had them interact backstage or something and take it to the ring. Not going to complain too much. I actually thought it was generally fine. I can accept it. So. As for Drew going over and over and over saying he would not defend the belt because he had just fought a match, I thought that kind of hurt him a little bit from a character standpoint. Uh, he could have just said he lacked, no. He, he lacked conviction, of course. Yeah, yeah. He, he he said several times he was not going to defend the belt. And eventually I was like, all right, you kind of want him to be the fighting champion at this point. He He was so against putting that belt back up on the line again. Uh, I think they leaned into it a little bit too much. You could have gotten to the same point without going a bit overboard on that. Um, so honestly, I didn't hate it overall. Uh, I, I don't, I just, I generally thought it was fine. I, I guess is my kind of how I felt about the whole show. I, I thought it could have been worse and it ended up being fine. Yeah. I, I mean, I accept it that, you know, I, I accept that opinion, but w when it is raw after WrestleMania, you do want that moment. Right. And they had the ability to do it. Now, you had Andrade, who has a hurt rib, right? Wasn't cleared to compete, who could have, as U.S. champion, stood up to Drew McIntyre. You could have done Jack's idea from our incident analysis show, which honestly is true genius. It would have been great. Just like when McIntyre won the title in NXT, Undisputed Era attacked him. Mm -hmm. You know Undisputed Era is all in Orlando. They could have attacked him. Yeah, Cole's still champion. You can fix that a few weeks from now. Uh, and call Undisputed Era up. You have a huge moment to end the show. It is. It makes sense that something happened in the aftermath of WrestleMania, and that people were would be would stay three hours to see it. Now you're excited. Now everyone's talking that it was a great Raw after WrestleMania. So they just picked the second most boring thing they could have done in that situation. The most boring would have been Kane. Well, because it's, it's always Kane. In this case, yeah. it was Big Show. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I understand your point. It kind of goes back to what you said, though, in that. They didn't necessarily want to start off a bunch of stories because they don't know if they're going to be able to record Raw yeah. again. Yeah. So the fact that we come out of WrestleMania kind of having downish feelings about Drew winning the title in that way to get him then another win over a former champion to take us into a potential break, I think was a good just 
a, a one-off. It's not a feud, just a one-off match. Hey, he beats a, he beats a big guy, makes him look good. Who knows what's next? But it it, it further. I, I think it did the job of further establishing him as champion. Doesn't set up anything going forward, obviously. But I think it did. I I think that's what they wanted to get out of it, and I think it accomplished that. Let me put it this way: I think I was much more offended that they promoted it as a huge deal for three hours than I was the segment that, that they ultimately gave us. I, I get that. I, I, I get it. But I don't know. I, again, I, if, I don't know if it's because I've been watching 1980s wrestling over this shutdown a, a, a lot. And it kind of felt like that. But I honestly didn't. I, I don't know. It, it, and it wasn't leaked. It was a true surprise. You know, I, I, <laughs> but it's fine. The... It wasn't the biggest thing in the world. Big show. It felt like. It, it felt like something from the 1980s, and I kind of just appreciated that. Right, well, it's still the effing big show. All right. Uh, the other big moment for me, and you know, I don't even know if it's a huge moment because it was kind of ruined on WrestleMania. That's kind of what I'm getting at, uh, was Bianca Belair is now on Raw, and there is no one, no WWE fan happier to have Bianca Belair on a major WWE show than I. But if we're being honest, the booking was atrocious. They re-ran the same match and save that they had at WrestleMania and gave us three matches rather than just starting with a six-person tag team match coming out of Mania. I, If I was booking it, you have uh, Garza and Austin Theory, they lost the match, beat down the Street Profits at Mania, stand over them. Zelina Vega say, we're going to challenge for you. We're going to challenge you again. Um, this was a fluke, whatever. End Mania, go into Raw. They do it again. You have Bianca Belair run out for the save. Now you have a surprise debut on Raw. You have uh, a tag match that becomes a six-person tag match, and you're done. Instead, they basically had three matches. I get it. They wanted to stretch out time and and commercial breaks and, and do the best they could to tell a story without having to figure out another match to throw into the show. But you have Belair one-on-one against Vega, and the guys run into the ring and interrupt it. And it's like, I just want Belair to beat Vega clean one-on-one. It's, I mean, it's her debut, right? Just have her win. So I, I, I didn't like that they gave it away at Mania. I didn't like that they didn't just have Belair beat Vega one-on-one. But then, to be fair, you know, and I'm going to be fair, all the action was great. The all Every wrestler involved in that six-person fracas uh, from the tag team match to the singles women's match to the six-person match, they were all good. Zelina Vega, I thought, was great with Bianca Belair. I was very impressed at how well they worked together. And Belair went over. Her promo was really good. So ultimately, it was it was a net positive, Chris. But I just think that a little bit more planning, a little bit of thought, it would have been far better. Yeah, it, it just felt like it was there to fill as much time as possible, um, which I, I kind of get. And, and, and this is the one thing, even more than Drew, I think, where y- you needed the crowd. I think Bianca Belair needs to debut to a crowd reaction because when a lot of people don't know who somebody is, they based on what they hear from a crowd as to whether or not this person's important. And if you don't follow NXT, you have no idea who Bianca Belair is. She feels like uh, I don't know. She cut a promo and stuff like that, but but putting her matching her up with Selena Vega and everything, it makes her feel like she might be a manager in this situation and not a star like she is. So, you know, we'll have to wait and who knows when everything comes back. But th- this is the one, I think of the whole thing on the raw after WrestleMania where you really needed that crowd. 
was when Bianca Belair comes out, cuts a promo, and everybody realizes that this is a big deal, and you can feel it. You couldn't feel it. Matches were great, like I said, but but it felt like the largest point of this whole thing was just to fill as much time as possible. Yeah, no, that's true. And and I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to give a criticism here because I praised Tom Phillips plenty over the entire weekend, but I laughed my ass off when Bianca Belair is like, I go here now, and Tom Phillips is like, well, I... I guess she's telling us that she's on Raw. It's like, I didn't need the translation, Tom. You know what? (laughs) You know what? Actually, that reminds me. One other thing from, we don't need to get into a whole thing, but coming out of WrestleMania, I thought it really, I I thought it highlighted main roster WWE's commentary problems. Oh, yeah. Especially during the last man standing match when you needed, you needed, there was so much silence there. You needed somebody who could weave weave you on a story in and out, talk about the past, bring different things in. What made, he, he's not a, he's, he, he's not good at it now, but Jim Ross back in the late late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. was yeah. the best at just weaving things in and out to keep you interested, to give you a reason to pay attention while maybe there wasn't much action going on. The, the current commentary just doesn't do it because they're only thinking about what's happened over the last couple of weeks, and there's not much building to any of that. I and I did think about on uh, Kevin Owens' jump onto Seth Rollins. I I know he's a bit polarizing. Uh, or some people love him, some people hate him. I would have loved Morrow on that call. Oh my God, yeah. For especially that, like Tom Phillips kind of gave a call, and then just there was a lot of silence after something like that. I I, I would loved. Moro or Jim Ross or someone to give you the whoa call and then talk about what kind of pain they're in, how far that jump was. Uh, just kind of fill some of the dead air there. There was a lot of silence from commentary at certain points like that. And that was another thing that stuck out stuck out to me with the silence is that commentary, which is, you know, people have criticized it for quite a while. I, I think it highlighted the problems with the way they do things. Yeah, I don't think that's unfair, but but I mean, that's cross-brand and cross-company, uh, too, because even AEW, now, Tony Schiavone's really good, don't get me wrong. T- you can't put Tony Schiavone and Tom in the same sentence right now, not, not this early in Tom's career, uh, but even, like, Tony with Cody on Dynamite, it's just like, ugh, like, yeah, <laughs> it's not really good commentary. Now, in this case, I did think Tom and Byron had their moments over the course of WrestleMania. I thought some of their commentary was solid, but you are right. In the major moment, in Owens, Rollins, um, in the NXT title match, I was watching Ripley and uh, Flair, and I was like, man, I wish Morrow was calling this match. It would have been epic. And then once that match was over, I started thinking about Wednesday's NXT show and Johnny Gargano, Tommaso Ciampa. I was like, oh, my God, we're not going to have Morrow calling the final match of this ultimate rivalry. So I have been you know, a little disappointed at some of that. I think if... WrestleMania had gone off as planned. Morrow would have called um, at least the NXT championship match, if not maybe an additional match on the show. But to look at the way the Bel Air thing played out, I just felt that it could have been done better without much having to actually change. Just a little more thought given to it. But I am excited to have her on Raw. And it's interesting because... We just had Shayna Baszler debut on Raw a couple months ago. Now we have Bianca Belair on Raw. And we had, on Monday night, Nia Jax returning. And I'm going to talk about Nia in a second. But it does interest me that this is, this is three pretty major debuts and returns on Raw. And we've had zero on SmackDown. Now, I know Raw is longer. 
But the women's division on Raw is so much stronger than the women's division on SmackDown. It does lead me to wonder whether we are going to have a draft or a shakeup or something coming in the next couple of months to move things around because it is to me a little strange how big the disparity is right now. And, you know, even if you do say, hey, you know, Carmella and Naomi are title contenders, that's fine. But just look at the depth. Look at Becky. Certainly, Flair is still, it seems, considered a Raw superstar, even though she has the NXT title. Now you have Baszler and Belair and Nia Jax, not to mention all the other women, Asuka, Kyrie Sane, that are already on the show. That is as loaded a women's division just on Raw as WWE's ever had on a single show. So I just think it's a lot, and I don't necessarily know the gymnastics of what they're going to do with all of that. But moving into Nia Jax, uh, she returned on Raw one year removed from double knee surgery. She actually, I think, had two torn ACLs and still worked WrestleMania 35, which is badass. Insane. It's insane. I couldn't imagine doing it. Uh, she beats Deanna Perrazzo using the Rampage as well, which was interesting. Uh, Paige tweeted after Raw that uh, Nia asked her for the move and she gave it to her. So it seems her new finish is the Rampage, which is a good move. It's it's a little strange because for Nia, I would kind of think I'd want something that uses her power and size more. But nevertheless, it's better than her old finisher. So I'll take it. Uh, I also saw a lot of people tweeting about Deanna Perrazzo that, oh, she's getting buried and, uh, you know, why, why have they done nothing with her? She's been there for a year. I mean, they can't push everyone all the time. She's made two Raw appearances. Um, yeah, has she gotten a huge push in NXT? No. But what if she kind of just bypasses NXT and ends up on Raw or SmackDown, you know, in the next few months once they figure out the rosters? You know, she's talented. She's good. And I thought they had a for a very short match. I thought they were pretty good. Um, now, Tommy Wrestling, one of our longtime listeners here, or one of our most dedicated listeners, I should say, at Tommy underscore takeover, he asks if he's the only one fired up for the thought of a Nia and Becky feud. If built slowly enough, given Nia's role in the emergence of the man's persona, do you think this could play out through SummerSlam? So I'm going to mostly pose that question to you, Chris. Uh, what do you think of Nia coming back and immediately jumping into a feud with Becky? I think it's a good idea because Becky needs somebody <laughs> to go through now. And, and she's ever since that Nia stuff, she's gone through everybody else since. I know Shayna had a had a promo afterward that I don't know, kind of implied she may not be done with Becky. I, I don't really know where it's gonna go, but considering they didn't want to pull the trigger on Shane at WrestleMania, I think Nia makes perfect sense as a way to come back around to where things started and just based on who's left on the roster that Becky hasn't gone through. So I, I think that would be a great idea and, and it could get to the story that I wanted them to tell with Shayna, which is Becky just gets completely overpowered and has to refine herself and build herself back up and go. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the story they told on raw was that Becky and Shane are going again. At yeah, the bank. that's that, why I was unsure. Yeah, that's the story they told. So that's what I am led to believe. Now, my expectation, if they go again at Money in the Bank, would be that Shayna beats Becky. Because if you're doing the match twice, and yes, I know they did it with Asuka, and I know they've done it before. But if you're doing the match twice like that, generally you expect a different outcome. And Becky at that point would have held the, held the title more than a year. She wouldn't be at Trish Stratus's mark yet. Um, but she, you know, have the number two record all time. And like I said, have a, a reign of more than a year. So changing the title would be fine. On the other hand, I love the idea of Nia Jax because they tried to play it out that I think by Becky eliminating Nia, 
during the Royal Rumble last year that that was her getting over on Nia. It was either that or she like punched her backstage or something like that as retaliation. And that's all they ever did with it. I thought they were going to give us a match. You know, now granted, I understand it was a short period of time between when Becky got concussed and broke her nose to then fighting Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair in the main event at WrestleMania. Maybe they couldn't put it together. But if you are going to put Nia Jax on Raw and Becky is the champion, it makes so much sense for that to be the match. So maybe Becky does beat Shayna and goes into a feud with Nia at SummerSlam. I got to be honest. I know people are going to kill me for this. But I would have Nia beat Becky for the title. I would have, just like you said, the size and the strength of Nia be the one thing that Becky's been unable to overcome. She put her down with one punch, nearly ruined her epic run of the man, then is the one to take the title off her. And that sets up Becky coming back at another pay-per-view down the line a couple months away, allow her and Seth maybe to take a break, go on vacation, maybe get married if they have those plans. Um, But a couple months down the line, Becky comes back, wins the title off Nia, All's right in the world. She's champion again. So I don't have much of a problem with that. I know people don't like Nia Jax, but she is a believable champion. And I think she would have really good matches with some of the other women on Raw, too. Oscar Nia Jax. I mean, a lot of good th- stuff can happen. Yeah, I mean, Nia is perfectly fine in the ring. I, I think there's there's ways you can do it. I, I, we have to find out what happens with Shayna here. I, I think if they hold off and Shayna ends up winning at Money in the Bank, it, you know, it's fine, but I feel like not pulling the trigger on her at WrestleMania is really kind of an indictment of how they feel about her. I guess we'll have I, to yeah. see. Uh, I guess we'll have to see where where things go because I was fully ready for Shayna to win that and 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 have Becky start over there. So I don't know. I because the only place it feels like left for Becky to go is to lose and have to find her way back because she's been on top for so long. You'd, we just need something out of her. She's again been borderline acting like a heel sometimes. So. I, I I don't I don't really know, but I, I whether it's Shayna or Nia Jax, I think there's you can tell almost the same story, and it turned out to be pretty good. So we'll have to sure. kind of see what happens next. Now the other surprisingly major or semi-major thing that happened on Raw was Apollo Cruz is now on the Red Brand quote based on draft picks that were about to expire. So that's the explanation they gave us on television. What does and that mean? Well, it was my, that's what I was going to say. It was a mind numbing <laughs> explanation at the time. What I will give them a slight bit of credit for is that at least they bothered to make sense of it because yeah. in the past he would just show up and no one would say anything like, hey, uh, wasn't he on the other brand? Wasn't he just like semi feuding with Chad Gable and, and just a short while ago? Right. And Seamus. Um, now. Chris, after about 30 seconds thinking about it, and anyone that follows the Getting Overcast Twitter account would know this, after 30 seconds, I realized what they were probably referring to was when Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross got traded from Raw to SmackDown for picks to be made later or for or for later considerations. Um, they never fulfilled those. Now, they kind of said that Brock Lesnar going to Raw was maybe part of that, but this would be the second half of that trade. This is the additional consideration that quote unquote was about to expire. If they had just said that on television, I know it's a nitpick, but that weaves in the real realness and the reality of the draft and of the brand separation where we say, Hey, if you guys remember three months ago, Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross got traded over to SmackDown. Uh, There were additional draft considerations. WWE Raw made a huge move here right after WrestleMania. The pick was about to expire. They got Apollo Crews. Music hits. 
boom. Like, like that's all you have to do. And, and if you're going to say that WWE is going after the smart fan or at least going after the fan that pays attention with something like Fiend John Cena and the way the Firefly Funhouse match played out, then you have to do that here as well. I know Apollo Crews is not a huge name. It's not like King Corbin showed up on Raw. I get it. But if you're going to go so far as to say, based on draft picks that were about to expire, then make the full connection and do it with Bliss and Cross. Because I honestly think that's what they were going for, but they didn't actually tell us. I think that's absolutely right. And I'll say, I think that's one thing AEW has done very well since it started is little details on everything, on kind of just why things are happening. And and even if it's not a big deal, it just makes you feel like they are paying attention to their own stuff. And it makes you feel like you can trust that they know what they're doing. And and uh, yeah, it, it, like I said, a little two seconds could have just fixed it. And, and it, 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 those tiny things can make a, a world of difference for what I just said. It makes you feel like they're paying attention to what they're doing. I mostly agree with that AEW comment, except there are so many occasions where people get title matches who are not a top one or two contender in the rankings or don't have the record to justify it. Jake Hager, yeah, he hasn't lost to anyone, but he has a title match coming up with Dean Ambrose, I'm sorry, with John Moxley, um, seemingly for no reason whatsoever. The build was terrible. So so this happened, and it's, it's happened plenty with the women's picture in AEW. So That's true. they try to do it, and they actively try to connect the dots, but even AEW fails many, many times for their in-ring or, or TV decision-making to make sense with this additional element that they added. So I like the draft picks. I hope WWE does another draft or a shakeup or something, but I don't want it to look like the last one did. It needs to make sense. A lot of your fans watch the NFL. They watch the NBA. They know what drafts are supposed to look like. If you're going to do a draft or you're going to do trades, play it out on screen and allow fans to understand what is happening and when. And in this case, again, it's a nitpick. But you just very clearly say there were picks to be named later. They were about to expire because the calendar year is ending. Raw got Apollo Crews. Very, very easy. Now, that said, he had a very good TV match with Aleister Black. Mm-hmm. I th- and I thought Aleister Black, and this is where I'm going to give Tom and Byron a lot of credit. They put over Apollo Crews for like four segments of TV constantly and made him feel like he wasn't just a throwaway addition to Raw, but someone who Paul Heyman may have some plans for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean that stuff, honestly, they could do for so many people. And and we know Apollo Crews is a, a heck of a wrestler and you could do something out of him. And yeah, it kind of you watch it and you it makes you feel like this guy I'm watching on my TV is important. I should remember him. I should keep I should keep my eye on him the next time I see him on my TV screen. And I, I like you could do that for, for so many people and it would just help everybody if you just raise the floor here. And uh, yeah, great job by commentary there. I hope you imagine it was part of a, a, a possible plan here. Um, and when they tell you the guy who you don't think is worth anything, when they tell you he's a big deal, that gets you invested in what you're watching. Like it's storytelling 101. You want to make all these people on your screen feel important. And it's exactly what they did. And I think, I think it all worked out. Yeah. Like I have higher hopes now for Apollo Crews than I have in quite a while because of the job commentary did. And because of the selling that Alistair Black did. And honestly, 
you know, it also gives me a little hope for Gable over on SmackDown because now he's not in this stupid thing with Apollo anymore. Maybe he does actually join with Daniel Bryan and Drew Gulak and we get that awesome trio that would just be like a, a Matt wrestling it. work rate group that would absolutely kill on that show. Nick Flynn at nflynn underscore 17. He said, so he may be out of the loop and possibly hasn't been paying attention, but who are you considering part of the Raw 6? And after a stellar four-segment match with Aleister Black, could you possibly extend that to seven to include Apollo Crews? So uh, a lot of people may not know, but in the ruthless aggression era of WWE, on SmackDown, Paul Heyman was tasked with kind of revitalizing that show. Uh, the Raw brand was seemingly built stronger with more stars, and Heyman had to kind of pick and choose a couple people that he thought he could put on a great show with. And what ended up happening is SmackDown became more critically acclaimed than Raw during that period of time, despite Raw being the A show. Now, I actually was not watching WWE from like 2002 to like 2004. So I missed a lot of that. But in watching the Ruthless Aggression special on the network, and I actually, for a period of time, and maybe I'll start again now that we're in quarantine and social distancing, I was trying to watch every Raw and SmackDown from all the years I missed. And I got to a point, but I forget what point it was. So... I don't even know how I could find that again. But regardless, there was a SmackDown 6. And I don't, off the top of my head, know every single name, but it was like Rey Mysterio, Kurt Angle, Eddie Guerrero, etc. So I was talking about this, I think, Chris, with you on a prior show. Maybe it was Jack. But Paul Heyman on Raw is doing right now what he was doing on SmackDown. And that is developing the B show, quote unquote, into the A show based on uh, excitement, entertainment, and in-ring action. He's been doing it basically ever since November. And it, you saw it at WrestleMania because a lot of the best built matches and the most exciting things that happened came out of Raw. So if I was going to look at a Raw 6, and I do think that there is a Raw 6 because it seems that Heyman has chosen particular guys to push the same way that he did on SmackDown back in the day, I think it's pretty obvious. You have Aleister Black, you have Andrade, Drew McIntyre, obviously Andrade, the U.S. champion, Drew McIntyre, the new WWE champion, Kevin Owens and Seth Rollins have been together in a massive feud for a long time. And then you wonder who's the sixth, right? And I, there's plenty of other guys still on the roster. You have Rey Mysterio lurking around. He was part of that SmackDown six. Um, AJ Styles, though, to me, is that other piece, the piece that you can put with any of those other five guys and have an absolutely incredible feud or match. And the other thing, and before I maybe get to that other thing, I'll let you kind of give me your six or see if you agree with me. But there is someone else who's lurking that I think we saw a little bit of on Monday night. But do you agree with that six? Uh, and do you agree with my theory that there is a SmackDown six and that Paul Heyman has kind of segmented certain people to get pushed and lead the show? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of the SmackDown six was underutilized guys who who Paul Heyman thinks can be main event contenders. And I remember he talked about it might have been in the Ruthless Aggression series. It might have been in, in one of the Untolds. But Heyman says he traded. I don't remember who traded, but he traded somebody for Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, and, someone really good, like Edge or someone like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and he said everybody laughed at him about it. And, and obviously we know what Eddie Guerrero became. We, we know Paul Heyman has always been about find guys who have certain strengths, emphasize those strengths, hide those weaknesses. I think the first five guys you named are, are obvious. If we if if you wanted to pick a six, maybe not over the last month, but it felt like Buddy Murphy was one of those guys for a little bit. 
putting him in in with Seth Rollins a bit and getting him a lot more shine than he had, which hadn't been anything. Now I don't know if who knows with where things are, if Mur- what Murphy's future is. But if I had to pick somebody else who I think is Paul Heyman pushing guys who he who he thinks can do more, I would look at the Street Profits. I, I know it's a tag team and they don't necessarily interact with everybody, but they they were involved with Seth Rollins stuff for a little bit there. I think Heyman sees in the Street Profits guys that. Uh, can be near the top of this business for a very long time. You actually make a great point. I was, I included styles because I put him in the Kurt angle role as like the veteran who can work with anyone. And I figured let's, let's include someone like that. But buddy Murphy really is the sixth. I think unfortunate circumstances with the pandemic, unfortunate circumstances with one of AOP. I think it was Razar tearing his peck. And now AOP is off TV again. So you had Rollins and all of his disciples and now the disciples are gone. I don't know if Buddy is in the United States or if he's back in Australia while this whole thing shakes out. I don't, I'm not sure what's happening, but out of sight, out of mind. And that's what's happening with Buddy Murphy right now. So he is that sixth guy, no question, 100%. Um, but I just didn't even think of him because I haven't seen him in a few weeks. Now, right. the person that, I think... Go ahead. Yeah, when, when I saw that group, when I saw the Monday Night Messiah group, AOP, Buddy Murphy with Seth, it just, you're like, it just felt like this is Paul Heyman getting shine on guys yeah. who probably deserve more. Absolutely. And Rollins told me that too in in my interview with him a couple episodes ago. Definitely listen to it if you haven't. But Murphy's always been that gem that they've been waiting for an opportunity. Seth saw a chance, brought him along. Maybe maybe very similar to how Triple H brought in Randy Orton, um, you know, to Evolution and kind of made that happen for him. But the other person who's lurking around is Ricochet. And I think a lot of fans jumped to the conclusion that Ricochet was dead and buried uh, because he lost to Lesnar in a couple seconds. He got squashed and on Raw, I think, the next night or whatever the case. Um, and it wasn't untrue. Like, right, Ricochet went from a guy who you were like, wow, this guy's U.S. champion. He has a long-term potential. Maybe one day, for one time, he'll get a, a fluke, quote-unquote, WWE championship run. Um, but they brought Ricochet back uh, last week, I believe it was, in a tag team match with Cedric Alexander. That was good. And they had him in a tag team match on Monday night with Cedric Alexander. That was great against Oni Larkin and Danny Burch, who, by the way, can basically make any tag team look great. But Cedric and Ricochet looked incredible as a tag team. And I know a lot of people, they want Ricochet to be a single star because he's so talented and he was great on the indies. I get it. I I get it. But but sometimes you have to make things work. And right now, if he's not going to be in the single singles picture on Raw, that doesn't mean he's wasted. That tag team with Alexander can 100% work. I don't know that it can work on Raw, where they already have an energetic, high-flying tag team in the Street Profits. It may be something they need to move to SmackDown, make a trade with the Usos or Heavy Machinery or New Day or something like that. But... I love them as a group, and I think they have legitimate potential long-term as a tag team. I, I'm skeptical there's any sort of plan for Ricochet. I, I noticed. I don't know if I just noticed it for the first time yesterday, but did you see he was he was the, he was a commercial for Raw doing a flip? Yeah. And then yeah. the camera goes to him. It's like a USA Monday Night Raw commercial. I don't know if that was new or not. It was the first time I'd seen it. It came I, out. I, uh, it came out last week. Okay, I, I I think they absolutely know he is a valuable member of this roster. I just don't know if they see big things for him 
in the future. I think he's a guy you can feed to Brock. He, he's believable enough you can feed him to Brock Lesnar or try to get a Rid, Riddick Moss over. But if you want someone to get a fun window to, to, to get the crowd excited, you can throw him in there. A guy who could kind of do everything. I, I, I kind of feel like he might have a Dolph Ziggler type of future, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I, I, I would need to see a bit more until I think that they have big plans for Ricochet. No, no, that's exactly what I think his future is. I think I think you nailed it. I think he's someone who can be a tag team champion, which is not, by the way, getting majorly pushed, not these days in WWE, who can be a mid-card champion at any time, and at some point in his career will get that opportunity to be a transitional, short-term world champion. Just like Ziggler was, I think Ricochet is a guy who can win money in the bank and cash it in on someone on a heel, get the win, and lose the title two months later at the next pay-per-view. I don't think there's much wrong with that, though, because despite every wrestling fan wanting, every indie darling, or every guy they like, and I'm included, man. Look, I'd love if Cesaro was world champion one day. <laughs> like, you know, you think he deserves it, right? But not every single wrestler can be world champion and not every single wrestler can get pushed simultaneously. So right now on Raw, they're pushing Black and Andrade and McIntyre and Owens. Rollins has a new uh, angle, a uh, new character, I mean. So Ricochet's, unfortunately, he's left out of that right now and he's in a tag team. Maybe it's exciting. Maybe it works for a little bit. But it's not going to last forever, and at some point, hopefully he does get back into the singles picture, whether on Raw, whether on SmackDown, and actually is someone that they are able to promote and use in a meaningful way. And I think Dolph Ziggler, you know, Ziggler for me long-term, like you, like you kind of mentioned, he was the guy I always thought they didn't do enough with. I thought he could have mm-hmm. been a lo- long-term champion, a star for WWE, but he was always upper mid-card. And I don't think there's anything wrong if, at the end of the day, you have a 15-year career as an upper mid-carder in WWE. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that is the Raw after WrestleMania, and maybe we can finally wrap up talking about WrestleMania, which we have now done so extensively over the last week on this podcast. You can follow Chris Vanini on Twitter at Chris Vanini. Of course, follow me at Silverstein Adam, and stay tuned right now for Getting Overtime. Okay, let's move into some of your questions and DM slides before we get out of here on this edition of Getting Over. Before we actually get to the questions, though, I did forget to mention one thing from Raw. Seth Rollins, they had basically come out and do a throwaway singles match that he moped through. He moped through his entrance, he won in relatively lazy fashion, and then moped to the back again after losing uh, to Kevin Owens at WrestleMania. I thought it was pretty good character work from Rollins. I thought it was pretty smart that they just kind of threw him into a match on Raw. Nothing of any importance considering he had just been demoralized after losing to Owens. So I thought it was a nice touch to get Rollins on the show and ensure that he did something. Uh, You know, I don't necessarily know long term what the situation is going to be in terms of tapings for Raw and SmackDown, who's going to be available and who's not. But being able to see Rollins one night after a loss rather than ignoring him and forgetting that he existed... I thought that was a good decision by WWE. All right, three questions this week on getting overtime. Obviously, we answered some during the show as well. Sean McDermott at I'm Board Brother. Are we about to have another draft? Well, we actually did end up talking about this a little bit during the show. I don't know if it's going to be a draft exactly, but I do think we are going to see a shakeup or a draft, free agency, trade season, something like that in WWE sooner than later. And honestly, it's a great idea. I do not, number one, want them to wait until after SummerSlam to do something like this. I don't want this to happen every October slash November, which is basically 
what they did. It was uh, October, I believe, week two of the new TV deals when they did the draft. I think it needs to happen very soon after WrestleMania, maybe after, in this case, Money in the Bank, since it's already scheduled and announced for May 10th. So it will be interesting to see what WWE does and how they execute it. But during this time where they are looking for content, they're trying to find ways to fill three hours of Raw and two hours of SmackDown without fans in the WWE Performance Center or whatever secret location they're going to be taping shows going forward. Being able to run a draft, mostly, over five hours across two shows, that is a full week of content. I think WWE absolutely needs to take advantage of that sooner than later as we wade through this pandemic right now. Uh, next, hashtag no daikon at Chef Aaron 26 uh, How criminal would it be if Lashley never held the Universal or WWE title? They could do great things with Lashley Lana, the way they did for Edge with Lita, but they're screwing it up royally. You would think Heyman could see that, but then again, I don't know the influence Vince is having on Lashley's role. Lana is her best as a manager, and Lashley could be a dominating heel and then return face and be the face he was during his first run with or without Lana. You know, Lashley, since his return to WWE, it's just been bungled from start to finish. You had the whole Lashley sisters thing. Um, certainly when he first returned on the Raw after WrestleMania, I believe it was last year, but maybe it was two years ago. Uh, it was very lacking. Uh, there wasn't much excitement for Lashley to be, to be back. And they have not yet let this guy be the most successful character of his career, which is the badass fighter that he was in TNA. And I wasn't even watching that product at the time, but I've since gone back and seen videos and he's completely capable of cutting his own promos and, and working for himself. They failed him with the sister stuff. They failed him with the Rusev feud. It looked like it was going somewhere. They had been building it and it kept you know, evolving. And you thought, okay, Rusev will eventually go over and get a massive face pop. Certainly fans were ready to do that for Rusev. But Lashley won that feud, Rusev disappeared, and now we're kind of sitting here like wondering what good is Lashley for Raw or for WWE. So I don't necessarily think it's criminal if he never holds the Universal or WWE title, but just like Braun Strowman, when you see someone like Lashley and you know they're extremely talented and you know they're a real-life fighter, this guy competed in MMA, you know he was a former champion in WWE, I believe he was ECW champion. It doesn't make much sense that this guy is not U.S. champion or challenging for that title or, yeah, winning the WWE championship at some point. That doesn't mean it has to be over Drew. It could be a transitional situation. But, yeah, this guy should have one of those titles at some point soon because he is big. He is a really good wrestler. But he's basically lost every major feud he's been in with the exception of Rusev. And that one has developed into... Lana being an annoying manager slash wife that we always knew she was going to be, but just now he's figuring that out when she's been that way the entire time. It seems a little strange. So it seems like they have a story to tell. I'll let them tell it. I'm not going to go too crazy about it, but could Lashley be used better? Yes. Is it criminal that he's not world champion? I would not call it criminal. That's got to be Shane at Shane O'Mac 713. Your conversation about who should retire Taker got me thinking. I would have Drew McIntyre retire Taker. Taker's almost 
an old man Undertaker version of the character now. I would have him win the number one contendership for a Survivor Series match against Drew, then have them tell the story of the old gunslinger going into one last fight against the new top guy, have a competitive match against Drew, but in the spirit of Shawn Michaels retiring Ric Flair, Taker struggles to get his feet in one corner, Drew is in the other. He almost hesitates. Taker tells him to come get some. Claymore, one, two, three. Taker leaves on his shield. I know there's a million ways to book it, but Drew is the new top guy. Give him the rub of retiring Taker. Well, a couple things. One, Drew is the new top guy for now. Hopefully, there's a number of top guys coming in, um, including an Aleister Black, including an Andrade, and so on. But Drew just got a massive rub. He won the Royal Rumble, eliminated Brock Lesnar from it, eliminated Roman Reigns to end it, then beat the hell out of Brock Lesnar with multiple claymores and left him sprawled out on the canvas to end WrestleMania. That's as big of a moment. Granted, there were no fans, but that's as big of a push uh, as you can ask for. So I don't think he needs any additional rub with The Undertaker. And I I, I get your point. It makes sense. Uh, But they tried to do that with Roman Reigns already. And Reigns beat him at WrestleMania. And Taker did kind of go out on his shield. He left his stuff in the ring. That was kind of the end of the mystique of The Undertaker being unbeatable once Reigns beat him. So the next win doesn't necessarily mean as much as the Lesnar victory over Taker and the Reigns victory over Taker was meant to mean. Um, Now you want to look at just putting the other person over and passing the torch. And that's how I look at The Undertaker now, as someone who will pass the torch. And the way that torch gets passed is from The Undertaker to someone like The Undertaker. For, you know, better or worse, that is the fiend, Bray Wyatt. He is the current WWE character most like The Undertaker and who has a future, maybe not as bright as The Undertaker's was, but along the same lines where you trust this guy to develop, refine, and alter his character over the next 10, 12 years of his career to always be fresh, always be unique, and always be someone that you can count on to cut a good promo, lead a good feud, and have a pretty decent match. Certainly the Fiend matches you know, have not been the best, but nevertheless, we've seen Bray Wyatt plenty of times. We know he can wrestle. So that's how I look at the Undertaker retirement match. It's more of a passing of the torch than a exact rub. And I think you have to pass the torch from Taker to Fiend, just like McFoley kind of did, where he passed the Mandible Claw to Fiend, um, rather than just rub someone like McIntyre, who candidly, at least as we're talking today, you know, which is April 7th, doesn't really need it. So that's where I land on that. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. If this is your first time listening, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to fine professional wrestling audio. If you do use an iPhone or Apple, head on over to Apple Podcasts, five-star review, leave some words, let us know how much you like the show, let us know your favorite parts of the show. Just praise me. You know, that's all I'm asking for. A little bit of praise, but no, seriously, every five-star review helps our standings in the Apple Podcast rankings, which means more listeners to the show, which means hopefully new technology and and maybe eventually some money coming into the show and we can blow up and do some really cool things, maybe make merchandise, maybe do events at pay-per-views. The more you guys support the show, uh, the brighter future it has. I've seen how many of you have already dropped five-star reviews on Apple and, and jumped to do it really quick. 
I massively appreciate it. But I also know how many people listen to the show on an episode by episode basis. And the number of reviews that we have, while good, is a fraction, a small fraction of the number of listeners. So please, I've, I've just gone on for like three minutes about it. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, five-star rating and a review. Help a brother out. Again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We will be back later this week with a Wednesday night wrap-up. We have Gargano Champa to talk about, folks. That will most likely lead the final show of this week. It has been a whirlwind covering WrestleMania 36. Thank you for listening to us during the Ultimate Preview, during the Instant Analysis, and the Raw after WrestleMania. I'm tired. You're probably tired of listening to me. So with that, I just got three words for you. Bye for now.